Well, good morning, everybody. It is uh, good to be with you all. My name's Bill, and I'm excited to see so many people brave the blizzard conditions outside uh, to be with us this morning. I want to welcome you all and also say hello to our friends at the West Campus and also those who are joining us online. It's good to be with you all here as well this morning. So we are in our second week of a series where we're looking at a couple of the scenes from the book of Acts. And last week, Andrew Bondurant started us out and kind of walked us through the first part of chapter one. And there he, uh, he showed us that, that, um, that Jesus was communicating several things to his followers before he returned to heaven. And he said that that, that, that passage walks us through this idea that, that God has a mission, that since the very beginning, God has been at work inviting people back into a relationship with himself. And this is seen throughout all of history, but culminates in the life of Jesus. And, uh, and we were told that, that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, had a volume one, the Gospel of Luke, the third book of the New Testament that focused on the life of Jesus and what he came to do. And that ended in his, his death and his resurrection. But not only did, does God have a mission, but Jesus invites us into that mission. And that's what he said to, to his followers. He said, now you are going to be my witnesses, that the mission that I've had, now you are going to be the ones that take it from here. And that's why we've called this series Acts Accomplished Through Us, Through His Followers. But there's a third thing that we learn, and that is that, that, that Jesus doesn't send us out into the world alone that we're not going out into the world just on our, on our own strength and our own ability, but that God has given us through Jesus the Holy Spirit to, uh, to provide everything that we need to accomplish this mission. And so in those, uh, in those early uh, lines of the book of Acts, we see Jesus, just before he returns to heaven, says two things to his followers. He says, number one, I want you to go back into Jerusalem. They were on the outskirts of the city at the time. Go back into Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And number two, when that happens, you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas and then ultimately to the ends of the earth, to the farthest distances of the world. And we see that that's what happens as the book of Acts unfolds, how the gospel goes from uh, just a, a small, rather unimportant corner of the Roman Empire to, um, to becoming a force that existed throughout the entire Roman Empire, even taking root in the city of Rome. And so um, what happens is uh, several chapters later in chapter four that we're going to look at today, that some of these first followers of Jesus find themselves in a, in a place where they, where they come to pray. And here's what they pray. And now, Lord, Grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. Now, um, we're going to talk about the, what gets them to that place, why they pray that particular prayer. But before we get there, I want to kind of ask you, what comes to your mind when you hear that word boldness? What do you think about when, when you hear that word? I remember when I was uh, much, much younger in the fourth grade, uh, our family went to the Indiana State Fair. Now, this was kind of a big deal for the small town that I grew up in because uh, the high school that I eventually would go to and graduate from, the culmination of their marching band season was the State Fair Band Day. And maybe some of you were, have been, been to that uh, experience before. But the way that that worked is schools would come in from all over the state. They would perform in the morning. 
And, um, and then the sweet 16, the best 16 bands would be selected and then come back and perform for round two in the evening. And so we went up and we had our tickets for the morning. But then once that competition was over, Edgewood High School was announced as one of the, one of the sweet 16. And then we had the whole rest of the afternoon to go and do the state fair thing. So we went and looked at the animals and went through some of the pavilions. And we were in one of those pavilions, uh, uh, I remember, where, where they sold all the knickknacks. You remember how, how that works. And I came across something that I, I, I just had to have. My fourth grade person said, this I need. And it was a raccoon skin cap. Yeah. So I, I had that thing in my hands and I began to do what we kids do, right? And beg mom and dad, can I, can I, can I get this, please, please? So um, my parents explained to me, now you have to remember, this is late 70s before everyone carried around credit cards. So when you went on vacation or you went to something like this, like you took your cash that you budgeted for. And when the cash was over, fun was over, right? Um, and so my parents explained to me, you can either get this cap or you can get a ticket for tonight's competition, but you can't have both. So one or the other. Well, I mean, come on, I was in fourth grade. This thing was in my hand. So I chose, I chose the cap, of course. And so how the evening unfolded is my, the rest of my family went and watched the bands perform from the from the stands there at the track at the state fairgrounds. And I spent the evening at the infield, sitting cross-legged, wearing my raccoon skin cap on the top of our red and white VW bus. Just picture that scene. Some other time I'll have to tell you about the blowgun that I ordered from the back of a National Geographic the next year. <laughs> um, you're probably thinking, what a strange little boy. <laughs> And what was wrong with his parents, right? Like leaving your kid by himself, by themselves in the, at the state fair, they would be arrested, I think, today. But it was a different world. We didn't wear helmets. And we played with jarts. It was a completely different thing. So, um, but I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about boldness. For me, putting on that cap, it, it made me think about about wildness and courage and outdoors and you know stepping into things that required strength and courage. And somehow when I put that thing on, I felt like I was all of those characteristics. I mean, it was, it was Davy Crockett. I wonder how that has worked in your, in your life. Would, would you say that, that you're a bold person? Does bold describe who you are? Would, would someone who's followed you around for the last week or maybe the last month say, that person has done some bold things. Or maybe you would, you, would, you would say that you used to be that way, like you were that kid. But somehow over the years, things like comfort and security and just the regular dependability of normal days has become more important to you. Let me just turn that question around. Are there things that maybe you have stepped away from because of a lack of boldness? Has fear maybe caused you um, to make a decision to not do the right thing, even though, even though you knew it was right, but it required a level of boldness that you just didn't have at the time? Or maybe you have felt like God is actually inviting you to step into a situation. He's inviting you to step into something, a decision or an action. And, and like you know that God is in this. But, but fear caused you to step back away from that and regret. And so, um, and so we're going to look at what, what is it that led from, from what we saw in Acts chapter 1 to Jesus' followers praying this prayer for boldness. But, but here's what I want you to think about. What if I were to tell you this morning 
that, that boldness that, that's required for us to live this life of adventure isn't something that we have to muster up from within ourselves. What if I were to tell you that, that boldness doesn't come from just a decision and then kind of gritting your teeth and working hard and stepping into that? What if I was to tell you that boldness came from another source? What if I was to tell you that boldness came because there is, an, there is another power, not our own, that works within us to bring us to that place. And so let me just kind of walk you through what happens between chapter one and chapter four. Um, so Jesus had told his followers, wait in Jerusalem now for the coming of the Holy Spirit. They gathered together. They were praying consistently um, together and they didn't have to wait very long, probably about 10 days. And while they were in one of these prayer gatherings, they heard a sound just like a rushing wind, like kind of a tornado or a freight train going through the, the space that they were in. And, and then there were like visible little flames of fire that came down and rested over every person representing the coming of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised. And so, uh, so these men and women, they go outside and, and they begin to speak in languages that they'd never studied before. There was a festival going on in Jerusalem. There were people from all over the area, from many different countries, from many different languages. And, and uh, Peter begins to preach. And, and the people are amazed because they're hearing that sermon translated into the language of their heart, into their first language. And they said, how can this be? These are just Galileans. These are just regular Joes. How is it that they're, they're able to speak in the language that we understand best of all? And some of the people were going, well, we know what's going on. They've had a little bit too much to drink. And so it was into that that Peter steps forward and he says, that's not what's going on at all. In fact, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. It's too early for them to have gotten to that place. But what's happening here is what was prophesied um, in the Old Testament through the prophet Joel, where he said the words of God, where God promised that he was going to, that he was going to send out his spirit upon all people. And so, and so Peter says, that's exactly what's happening here. And then he goes on to speak about Jesus, how Jesus came and how he, how he lived a perfect life and how he was uh, crucified, how, how he was put to death on the cross and how he rose again. And he comes down to the end of that sermon in Acts 2, 36, and he says, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And the response of that is people are cut to the hearts and they say, what must we do? And Peter says, repent of your sins and be baptized. And Luke tells us that 3,000 people responded in that way on that day. And chapter two ends with the people all together. They're uh, gathering together. They're sharing meals together. There's just this awe that has kind of taken over the city. And uh, the very next chapter, chapter three, we see on one of those days, Peter and John go into the temple area at three o'clock in the afternoon for a time of prayer. And while they're walking through one of the gates, there's a man there who um, we're told has been, uh, has been lame. He's unable to walk and he's been that way since he was born. And now he's in his, his middle age years. And every day he would be carried in and plopped down in that place so that he could ask for money in order to survive. And so probably you can imagine the scene. People are walking by, maybe doing what you've done before in a similar situation. It's like, don't make eye contact, right? Just like eyes straight ahead. Um, but Peter and John make eye contact with this man. And in fact, they tell him, look at us. And Peter says, you know, you know what? We don't silver and gold. We don't have, we have no money, but what we do have, we're, we're going to give to you now in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
And just imagine what that man thought when he heard those words, right? He probably was thinking something like, you know what, just stop playing with me. Give me what I need. (laughs) Just give me some money. That's what I really need. But then imagine his thoughts as he felt things that he had never felt before, as he felt strength coming into his feet and his ankles and his legs. And Luke tells us that, that Peter reached down and, and they pulled him up and together they walked into the temple, except this guy wasn't just walking. He was walking and he was leaping and he was lifting his arms and praise to God. It was a very visible, noisy thing and it drew a crowd because everyone knew who this guy was. They had walked past him maybe every week. They had seen him uh, day in and day out for years. And now this guy that, that had, they always saw on the ground now is up walking and dancing around. And so a crowd comes and Peter says, all right, here's an opportunity. And he does exactly what he did in chapter two. He begins to preach to the crowd. He begins to speak to them about Jesus. And he says, hey, don't look at us like we've done this thing. This has happened because of Jesus, the Messiah. And he begins to speak about them. And we're told again, a number of people respond. And we see that when, that when Jesus shows up, lives are transformed. When Jesus shows up, people take notice. When Jesus shows up, though, there's often opposition. And that's what happens. So the religious leaders hear about this commotion and they, and they come out to see what's up. And they understand that Peter and John are talking about Jesus. And we're told that this was annoying to them because you remember, it wasn't that long ago that these were the very people who had made the decision that put Jesus on the cross. And they thought that would have ended it. But now here are these guys talking about Jesus again. And so they pull them in and they hold them in custody overnight. And, uh, and the next day they begin to question them and ask them like, what, what's going on here? How has this thing happened? And they begin to threaten them. And look what happens here, starting in chapter four, verse seven, as this scene unfolds. So after they had Peter and John stand before them, again, they've been held all night. They begin to question them, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers and people of, of, and elders, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, And by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which you must be saved." And when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And so here we see, especially in that last verse, that that the Bible doesn't just describe people who are are heroic, people who who are superhuman, people who are different than you and me. Instead, what we see is that God over and over again uses people with weaknesses just like we have. We see in, in many of these very same people, their interactions with Jesus, that very often they doubted Jesus just as much as they trusted him. They were easily de- de- uh, deluded. They were easily pulled back from situations that required courage. In fact, it wasn't that long ago that on the night that, that Jesus was arrested and ultimately crucified that Peter turned tail and ran. And here he is standing there in this moment. God uses people, as we've heard, just like like you and me. 
And so how is it that these guys were stepping into the mission that Jesus had given them with so, so much courage and so much boldness? Well, I think the leaders nailed it in that verse 13. Listen to what they noticed about these two. First, they observed the boldness of them. Like these guys were speaking to the most powerful people in their culture. When they saw Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated, that means they, that there was nothing in their past that would have predicted that they would have been standing in this place right now. They had no formal training. They weren't public speakers. In fact, their entire professional career had been fishing. Nothing said that they would be standing in front of the most powerful people doing what they were doing, and that they were untrained. And that word actually sounds a lot better in English than it does in the original Greek that Luke was writing in. He uses the word idiotes. It doesn't exactly mean idiot, but it means people who keep to themselves, people who we would say don't get out much, people who are kind of backward, uneducated. It's, it refers to like they do in the South, like bless their hearts except it's not quite that polite. They're untrained men and they were amazed and recognized finally that they had been with Jesus. And I don't know if when they made that observation, they were just saying, okay, these guys were connected with Jesus or, were they, or maybe they were connecting the dots between that fact and the boldness that they see in them right now. But here's what we see from this, from this passage is that regular people become bold people when they have an encounter with the living Jesus. That regular people like you and I become transformed people with boldness when we have an encounter with Jesus. These men had been with Jesus. They had walked with him. They had seen him in the way that he, that he wept over the crowds. They had seen him speak to individuals. They had seen him speak to large groups. They know how he cared about people. They had seen him lock eyes with individuals or maybe be interrupted by someone just the way Peter and John had been interrupted when they walked into the temple that day. And they had seen him give over and over again exactly what was needed, whether that was, that was just acceptance or forgiveness or maybe their need to be challenged in some way. They saw that Jesus was a man of incredible love and what he offered to the world, they had experienced that transforming power in their own lives. Day after day, scene after scene, they had been changed by Jesus. And there was one, one scene that Luke tells us about in chapter 10 of, of the Gospel of Luke that maybe changed them more than anything else. He is about to send, Jesus is about to uh, send out his followers two by two into some of the towns that he's about to go and visit. And he says, go, and what I want you to do is, is I want you to tell the people that the kingdom of heaven is coming near and, he, and, and then heal them and cast out demons in my name. But before he sends them out, he says these words, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So when Jesus saw these crowds, he didn't just see a mass of people. Instead, he saw individuals who needed to hear the message of God's goodness, that God has come close through the person of Jesus. He saw individuals who needed someone to go and tell them. And he said that when, when you workers go and share the good news with people, there's gonna be a great harvest of those whose lives are changed. Now, this moment must have changed them forever. I had an experience that, that maybe came somewhat close to what, what they experienced um, last year. I got to go on a, on a short-term trip to, to visit one of our, um, our global partners last year. And um, 
the day after we came into the country, we had the opportunity to kind of tour the capital city and sort of get the spiritual climate of the place because we were there to pray. That was, that was basically what we did uh, the week or so that we were there, just praying for God to move among those people where there's less than 1% of those who, um, who have been uh, uh, changed by the message of Jesus Christ. And so at the end of that day, they took us up to a place where we were overlooking the capital city there that, that we had been driving around um, that day and, and said, we're just going to take some time to pray for this place. And you just need to know that as, if you see a person maybe walking down there or you see a bus that's full of people or a car or a building, whatever, whatever catches your mind or catches your eye, if, as you pray for the individuals in that home or in that vehicle or walking, you just have to know that that this will probably be the first time those people have been prayed for in the name of Jesus, ever. And so we spent, a, we spent about a half an hour doing that, just praying for God to move in that city and in that country. And then we all came back together again, and I'll never forget what, what we were told. Our host said, you know, we're up here as followers of Jesus, and we have the light, right? And there is this whole city and a whole country kind of stretched out before us where people, for the most part, are living in darkness. And he said, now, just imagine if you were down there and you knew you were in the dark, but, but you knew there were people up here praying for you who had what you needed most of all, who had the news that you needed most of all, how would you want them to pray for you? What kind of words would you want them to use? Or, or how much desperation would you want as they cried out to God on your behalf? And what if you could put yourself in the place of those who are down there and you, were knew the, and you knew those who had the truth, who had the light, were up here. What excuse, if they never came and told you, if they never came and shared what they have with you, what excuse would you be okay with? Like if they came and they said, you know, I never told you because my life was pretty busy and complicated. Would you be okay with that excuse? Or I, I never shared what I had with you because... I was just, I was afraid how you might receive that. I was afraid that you might reject me. I was afraid that, that you might persecute me in some way. Would, would you be all right with that excuse? Would you say, oh, okay, I understand. I mean, I, I get it. I'll give you a pass on that. And so in that moment, I, I just, I came to see that if, if I want to be bold for Jesus, I have to be desperate to get to know Jesus and to be transformed by Jesus so that I can love and care for people the way he does, so that I can see the lost, see those who are in darkness with the same kind of desperation for them to come into the light of the good news that Jesus had. That we need to, if we want to be transformed in that way, we need to spend time with Jesus, reading about him from the Gospels and gathering together in small groups for the week and gathering together in this place week after week so that we can be changed, so that we can look at the way, at people the way that, that Jesus does and that we can look at the world the way that Jesus did and so that we can have the boldness that Jesus had when he came into this world and when he went to the cross for each of us. Let me just share with you a little bit of what, about what that boldness might look like. I, I love that Andrew told us that most of us on mission just looks like regular people doing regular things except with gospel intentionality. I learned something about my family um, about a month ago that I didn't realize before. I knew um, that my, my dad's parents grew up in homes where there was no spiritual influence. They were not believers at all. And so they kind of came into their adulthood without faith of any sort. 
And I also knew that, uh, that after my uncle and my, my father were born, a few years later, my grandma carried a daughter full term, and then this daughter was stillborn. And this was a, a hugely difficult thing for my young grandparents. They were 26 years old at the time. But what I didn't know is somehow a, a notification about this got into the, the little town newspaper in Tiffin, Ohio, about what had happened with my, with my grandparents. I don't know if it was an obituary or something like that. But someone in that little town, no idea who they are, saw that and thought, you know what? I need to reach out to this couple. And so they did. I don't know if it was just a card or if it was a phone call or if they stopped by. But the result of that, of that was that within just a short period of time, my parents began attending church um, at the little Christian church in Tiffin, Ohio. And not long after that, my dad says one of his very first memories was watching his parents walk down at the end of a church service, sort of an altar call kind of thing, and profess faith in Jesus Christ and be obedient in baptism. Now, I don't know what kind of courage or boldness it took for that person to reach out in that way. Just a very, very simple thing. But what I do know is that four generations of my family have been changed forever because of that, because of that one thing, that just normal thing of stepping across the street, stepping into the lives of my grandparents. That's what it looks like. And so um, as the story continues, the officials kind of think this over and they threaten Peter and John, and they tell them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Their answer, look what they say here. Um, they say, Peter and John, answer them, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They threaten them some more, but they realize they can't do a whole lot to them because this is a very visible thing. This miracle that was performed for this man who couldn't walk, but now, is, now can walk. We're told that he was over 40 years old. Tons of people knew who he was. Tons of people had witnessed him, um, his healing. And so, so they said, okay, we're just gonna release you, but you better not keep doing what you're doing. And so they threatened them some more. And you have to understand these were not empty threats because these were, again, the same men who had put Jesus on a cross just recently. And so what do these guys do? Um, Luke tells us what happens next in verse 23. So they uh, were released. They went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and their rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. This is all from Psalm chapter two. For in fact, they say, in this city, here in Jerusalem, both Herod and then later Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assemble together against you and your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do what? To do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And so as they begin to pray, their prayer expresses, they don't pray for themselves. What they do is they, they say, God, we trust in you. And they show us that regular people become bold people when they trust that God is with them. 
They say, God, you are the ones who made, you are the one who made everything. You made the heaven, you made the earth. And then they quote from Psalm chapter two, which is all about, which is all about how God's plan is going to go forward. It doesn't matter if the nations rage or if kings come together and plot against you, your plan goes forward. And David writes in that Psalm, he says, and the one enthroned in heaven laughs because he knows that he's more powerful than those plans. And so we see they don't pray in this moment that, God, would you just take these guys out? Would you make these religious leaders suffer horribly? They don't pray, would you uh, keep them from being so mean and unpleasant to us? They don't pray, God, would you convert them so that they join us on this mission? They don't even say, God, protect us. What they say is, God, you've got this. God, you have a plan and nothing we believe is gonna stop that plan from going forward. So last week, Andrew challenged us with this idea that what would it look like if all of us believed that we are on mission when we step out into the places where we work, the places where we spend our time, whether it's the, the gym or the office or the factory or the school or the hospital, wherever it is that we spend our days and the people that we're rubbing shoulders with, what difference would it make if we were to go out into those places on Monday on mission, recognizing that Jesus has sent us into those places on mission? And I think today's passage takes us one step further in that question. What would it look like if we stepped into those spaces on mission, but we believed and we understood down to the core of our being that as we go into those places that God is with us and that God is going to protect us and God is going to make his plans go forward. And so as we step into those spaces and as we come home at night and drive into our driveway or pull into our parking spot, that God doesn't have us in that neighborhood or in that apartment complex by accident, that we are there on purpose and God is empowering us to, to move forward with the mission that he's given us. What difference would that make? And so when things get difficult, they don't pray for these things. Instead, they say, God, we're going to trust in you. We believe that you are more powerful than anything that stands against your mission moving forward. And so they focus their prayer on God and on his mission. And then look what they say in verse 29, continuing. And now, Lord, consider their threats. And by the way, that's the only thing they say about what has just happened to them. Consider their threats. In other words, look at their threats and recognize how that might normally make us feel how that might normally make us want to react, to kind of step back away from that. Consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders, while you do your thing that's gonna accompany the words that we speak, that these things are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, look what happens, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word of God boldly. And what we see from this prayer is that God takes normal people and helps them become bold people when they pray for boldness. One of the things that I love about our, um, 
our outreach department here as a part of our staff, and we have many volunteers. These are the, these are the people you hear, that when you hear us talk about ministry partners um, around the world or in different cities here in America doing church planting or here in our, in our own context here around Evansville, these are the ones who have developed and maintained and kind of empowered those relationships. There's a lot of people um, in our church that are a part of that, a part of that department of what we do. But um, one of the things that I love about them is that when, that, that when one of them reads a book, and they're like, this is a really, really good book. It's not too long before a couple of cases of those books show up and they just start passing them out like candy. And so I have a couple of books, probably about 10 actually books on my desk and on my shelves that have come to me that way. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is a common theme uh, to some of, these, some of these books. We read about things that God is doing around the world that is just spectacularly amazing. How God is moving among people groups and among cultures and among languages and among people and nations that have been resistant to him in the past but where the message of Jesus Christ is moving forward at an astounding rate. We call these um, uh, church planting movements or disciple making movements. And we read about things that are happening um, beyond anything that we've ever seen in America. Not just in the past, but at any time in America. We see people that have been resistant for, for generations and maybe even centuries that are turning to Christ in these movements uh, in ways that, that can only remind us of what happened in the book of Acts. And one of the things that we see over and over and over again that accompanies these movements of God is prayer. Miraculous Movements, one of the books that we've read, um, talks about how many people are, are turning from Islam to, to Jesus Christ. And uh, the book describes that in every case where there is a movement, it is accompanied by uh, much prayer. And the writer, Jerry Truesdell, describes for us what much prayer looks like. It says that these new Christians, he tells us, um, uh, gather together sometimes a couple of times a month for all night prayer gatherings. That, that they will take one day a week and fast through two meals for the purpose of praying. That these believers will um, spend an hour each morning, sometimes two hours, sometimes three hours, um, praying for God to empower them as they share the love of Jesus Christ with their neighbors. And these are not like seasoned Christians. These are not missionaries. These are new, brand new baby believers. And what the author tells us is that we see God doing things that he did in the book of Acts because these new Christians are praying like Christians prayed in the book of Acts. Another book, Church Planting Movements, um, the author makes a list of 10 kind of elements that are a part of, of these sorts of movements of God. Number one on the list, you guessed it. It's prayer. And that's why we here at Crossroads are doing a series on prayer here in a couple of weeks and the weeks leading up to Easter. And it's not just going to be a series where we talk about prayer, but we're going to actually create experiences that we can go through together to be trained and, and to walk through that'll take us into deeper levels of prayer. That's why the staff of our church gathers together in this space every Thursday at two o'clock to pray for an hour. We invite you, come and join us in that time. That's why uh, we have a worship night coming up on, on March 17th so that we can, that we can worship um, as, the, as our friends in the book of Acts did and ask God to, make a, to move in our church and move in our city and move among the nations. That's why there are some folks at our West Campus who, who get up early every morning, I'm talking Monday through Saturday, every morning to open the building at six to pray together for God to transform our city 
city. That's why we see, that's where we're seeing pockets of people gathering together around our city that are not just coming from one church, but are coming from several churches to pray for a movement in our place and in our time. And guys, I have to tell you, I believe that God is doing something here at Crossroads in March of 2019. I believe more than I've ever believed anything about the direction of a church right now. And I have to tell you that as I read this passage over the last couple of weeks and as I've thought about where we're gonna go this morning, I've been really drawn to this, but to be perfectly honest, there's a part of me that's a little bit scared as well because I am not by nature a bold person. I'm just not. There have been more times in my life, if I were telling the truth, where I felt God tapping me on the shoulder to step into a conversation with someone or step into someone's life, and, and I've stepped back from that opportunity. And I've made excuses for myself. I'm an introvert. I'm actually very highly introverted. So, you know, it's not my personality. Or I'm more of a teacher than I am an evangelist. But, but, but I have to tell you, I am tired of that. I am tired of making excuses. Like, I want to be bold like these Christians in the book of Acts were bold. And it's not for the sake of boldness, although maybe that, maybe that kid in the raccoon skin cap is still in here somewhere. But it's, but it's for the sake of the mission that God has given us. The mission is too important People are too important. Their lives are at stake. And God has maybe placed me in their lives and I might be the only one who knows Jesus who will ever have the opportunity to share what I have and what, how God has transformed my life through Jesus Christ, that that person will ever come in contact. And so I don't want to ever step into one of those moments again and then step back because I'm afraid. I want to step into those and the truth is, if you are here this morning, or if you are listening to my voice, it's probably a reality that someone in your past, maybe in your life or in the lives of your parents or your grandparents, step into their lives, and that's why you are here. And so I'm a little bit afraid, but there's one thing that gives me hope. I don't know if you noticed that in this passage, but you never see a person alone. It's Peter and John who go together to pray. And after they're released, they, they go back to their friends and they pray together. And then after they pray and God shakes that place, and I believe that as that place shook, that is God saying, yes, I'm gonna answer that prayer. They all went out together and they spoke the word of Jesus with boldness. And we see this not only in the lives of these people, but we also see this in God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's God the Son who has given them the message, who's transformed their lives. It's God the Father who planned this mission from the very beginning and who's gonna make sure that it marches forward. And it's the, the Holy Spirit who comes in and empowers them. It's, we see God, Father, Son, and Spirit united together, empowering the mission and making sure that it goes forward. And I believe that it's in this togetherness that we will be able to do exactly what God wants us to do. We'll be able to step forward and say yes to the mission that God has given us. Amen. Listen how Luke wraps this up. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and one mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, 
the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was on all of them. Crossroads, I believe that God is calling us into a moment. And I believe we are not gonna turn tail. I believe we're not gonna step back from that moment because together, arm in arm, on our knees, I believe we are gonna move forward with a world transforming boldness. And I think that we can do that if we do that together. Let's pray. Father, we sang just a couple of minutes ago that we've seen you move the mountains. And we trust that you can move them again. God, we see you move mountains in the book of Acts. We've seen you move mountains through history. We see you move mountains today in places where we never would have expected it. And we believe that you're going to move mountains here in Evansville, Indiana. And so, God, we pray for you to do that. God, we ask you for boldness. We ask you that you would help us be desperate to know Jesus Christ so that we can be transformed by him, by his love that we can take out to a world that is desperate and dying for what we have. God, let us not be stingy and hold on to that, but let us give freely. God, let us be those workers who go out into the harvest field to gather a great harvest for your glory and for the change in the lives of people that will last through all of eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen.